Welcome to Rast Talk, a podcast on recirculating aquaculture and sustainable food production. Brought to you by Rastec, the premier publication for Rast professionals. Hello and welcome to another episode of Rast Talk. This is your host, Marilyn de Guzman, and co-host Brian Vinci is also here today. Hello, Brian. Hello, Marilyn. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Uh, busy. Um, you know, we've had to adjust uh, the way we're doing our uh, our communications with folks in our meetings, and uh, seems like Microsoft Teams and Zoom is is uh, always up on my screen nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we've I've participated in uh, two uh, webinars on land-based uh, salmon projects in the last two months or so, and and those are interesting. It's nice to be able to have a way to interact with people still while we're while we're in the pandemic. That's right. Yeah, I think everybody's kind of been become tech savvy these past few months with all the online uh, virtual uh, meetings that's happening where it's been busy here at Annex as well. As you know, we we host the RASTEC uh, conference every year. We started last year and we were going to do one this year in November, but we decided to do a virtual summit instead. And that's happening in September on September 16th. So um, yeah, that's actually we're uh, pretty busy doing the preparations for that. We all, we have our agenda the set so looking really looking forward to that so so if everyone um, is interested uh, we have a RAS virtual summit that's happening you can check that out at rastechmagazine.com we contributed I think your on-demand session so we have uh, I think six or seven maybe even eight speakers and uh, those are just on demand but folks have to register is that right Yes, yes. So we do have those recorded sessions already on there so people can access them uh, right away, but they they need to register. It's all, it's free registration. Uh, they go to RASTEC Magazine and RAS, uh, under events, RAS Virtual Summit, they, they can see all the pre-recorded on-demand presentations there so they can get started on that. Um, they just need to uh, register with their name and email address, I believe, and then they can get access to all that content, that wonderful content from Freshwater Institute. Awesome. I'm looking forward to the summit. Yeah, me too. So today we're going to talk about RAS technology, its evolution and the future for land-based recirculating aquaculture. And joining us in this discussion is Mark Sorensen. He's the owner of Sorensen Engineering, a Canadian company just in our backyard, specializing in land-based recirculating aquaculture and water treatment. And he provides professional engineering services as well. Welcome, Mark. So, Brian, I'm going to let you start off the discussion here, Mark. Sure. Mark, before I uh, take us in the Wayback Machine, um, you, you and I have known each other for probably 10 years, but uh, it'd be nice for the listeners if you just kind of gave a brief background on uh, who you are, what what you, uh, what you're up to, and, um, and what Sorensen Engineering does. Yeah, so I guess I graduated from mechanical engineering in 2006 and started working uh, with a company in Charlottetown, Atlantic, designing equipment for the land-based aquaculture industry. And after three or four years with them, I moved uh, moved on to work with uh, Mel Steffens at Casico. Um, and Mel kind of mentored me in the design of RAS systems. And he's, you know, he's the one who introduced me to you, Brian, and, and the folks at uh, the Freshwater Institute and, and started taking me to Roanoke. Um, after working with Mel, I guess, for three or four years, uh, just kind of made sense to as kind of a natural uh, progression for me to 
to start up Sorensen Engineering and, and kind of continue the work that uh, Cosico was doing. Mel was a great guy, and uh, you were fortunate to have him as, as a mentor. Um, I think I first ran into Mel in uh, around 2001, and uh, he was really excited about uh, designing recirculation systems for um, Oak Bay Hatchery. And um, yes. Steve and I, Steve Sommerfeld and I ran up there with Mel, and it was a, it was a great visit looking at some early designs from uh, Eric Swanson, uh, who was designing RAS systems on the uh, East Coast in the Canadian Maritime. So, uh, yeah, Mel was a great guy. Um, to get the uh, conversation moving on the evolution of RAS, I thought I'd review a little bit of the history um, that I'm aware of uh, with recirculation aquaculture systems. And um, I started in the industry in uh, 1991. I was at a small trout and salmon nutrition lab that actually had a salmon small recirculation aquaculture system. So that was in 1991. They had developed it in, in 1982, and it had a very basic uh, plate settler for settling solids. It had a fixed bed of activated carbon for uh, nitrifiers, so it's the biofilter. And then uh, we had uh, three uh, ozone generators and foam fractionators, and it was a heavily ozonated system, very clear, <laughs> very clear water. Um, but, you know, they, like I said, they developed it in 82, but the development of RAS actually goes back to the early 70s and a lot of really good stuff uh, in California at the time in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, Steve Surfling, um, Jim Carlberg, uh, Jack Van Oost, uh, Dallas Weaver all came out of uh, university in the late 60s and early 70s and started working on recirculation aquaculture systems. Surfling actually um, had a huge... Uh, Bioflux uh, recirculation aquaculture system for tilapia that was started in 1973, which is really early on. Carlberg and Van Oost weren't too far behind with Kent Sea Tech, and they went commercial in 1980 with their hybrid stripe bass farm. And the technologies used there, Mark, were like really basic stuff. Of course, the Bioflux was was suspended, but uh, things like U tubes for oxygen uh, had been developed in California and were used there. And uh, Dallas Weaver had ported over technologies from his um, environmental engineering background and fluidized sand beds and uh, pack, pack columns. Um, he had put his system together in the mid to late 70s. So, so some really early stuff there with uh, some basic technologies. And then uh, 1980s, a lot of university development, uh, North Carolina State, Tom Lasorto, Cornell University, Mike Timmons. Uh, Ron Malone at LSU, George Leiby, Virginia Tech, they were all developing systems with biofilters. I think it was uh, 91, this first time I ran into Mike Timmons, uh, saw his system. And interesting, um, guys, it had no pumps. It only used airlifts to move water, and it had a, a settling basin and a rotating biological contactor. And, and nowadays, of course, we have systems with pumps that are, you know, bigger than a person. And uh, Mike was was doing it all back then with airlifts. He had patents on that system. And there was actually a, a small cooperative in New York State that was based around that early RAS design, which, again, was like 1991. About that same time, Blue Ridge Fisheries was uh, being built. Um, it was kind of a Virginia Tech extension of technology, uh, George Leiby's program there, Tech to build Blue Ridge Fisheries, which is a company headed by Bill Martin and now Martin Gardner and a couple other folks um, that had been developed in the late 80s, early 90s. And that system, if you 
if you haven't been there, Mark, in Maryland, um, or even heard about it, it's it's a huge indoor warehouse uh, with tilapia and uh, rotating biological contactors and YouTube. So, you know, some of these these basic technologies uh, continue to be the same uh, from the 70s to the 80s. But then as we get into the 90s, then you start to see a whole range of technologies being developed, especially biofilters. So we had the RBCs that had come from the wastewater industry, but uh, Dallas had developed a fluidized sand bed, but then things like the moving bed biofilter uh, from uh, Kruger Caldness. I think it was just Caldness at the time. And uh, they were being worked on and being published on and some new oxygen technologies. Um, I know Mark, you're familiar with the low head oxygenator that had been patented in the 80s. Uh, interestingly, um, microscreen filters were not common. So that's a technology we see really common today. But I think we had at Freshwater the very earliest version of a screen filter called a triangle filter. And that was late 80s, uh, 1988. And it really wasn't until early 90s that we had a drum filter. So you know, really, really early on stuff. And over in Europe in the in the 80s, I know Billund and Hesse were building recirculation systems for eel farming in the Netherlands. And those designs were heavily uh, based on trickling biofilters, again, a wastewater treatment design, um, and species cones for oxygenation. And you know, species had developed that as part of a wastewater treatment project in 76. So. So the technology started as, as kind of uh, these things that were ported over from wastewater treatment or, um, you know, just developed straight out in, uh, early on from some fishery biologists. And it isn't until that the 90s and early 2000s that we start to see some some aquaculture engineering specific designs coming around. And, and I know Eric Swanson, Mark, uh, you might be able to fill us in on when when Eric was going around putting in fluidized sand beds in the Maritimes. I can't say exactly when he started, but I could say that I've worked around several of them. Um, yep. I guess uh, nowadays most of the chambers that he would have put in place uh, have been converted over to have media. So okay. uh, I, I think probably the hydrodynamics weren't as uh, well understood when he was doing that work as, as say, you know, the units you folks are using today. Mm-hmm. So there were issues with the sand uh, properly fluidizing and, and kind of passing into the system. Yeah. You know, today, mo- most of those, you know, there's still several of those chambers uh, on systems uh, that he would have put in place. Uh, it's just they've been converted over to, ha- to have media. Yeah, I I think my recollection is that, you know, Eric was doing that work in the in the mid to late 90s. Um, putting in systems with large circular tanks and and uh, fluidized sand beds. It may have even been earlier, Brian, because okay. um, I know like uh, like you guys visited Oak Bay at at Cook. Um, they built their first moving bed uh, around 2000 or 2001. So yeah, that's right. You know, I think around that time uh, they were they were already kind of moving in that direction. Gotcha. And and you came along. You mentioned that you've you've worked around some of these filters, but you came along in that mid 2000s, um, as you yep. said. You you gra- you graduated mechanical engineer from was it Dalhouse or no uh, University of New Brunswick. Okay. So and... it's kind of interesting. Uh, the the university is about an hour and a half from the industry. And I never heard about aquaculture until my last uh, last semester. So hmm. it was just kind of luck. Yeah, interesting. So when you when you came on with uh, with Atlantic, 
what was Doug and, and the crew uh, building equipment for? And what were they? What, what technologies were they putting out? At the time, it was uh, you know cascading counterflow CO2 strippers with the uh, with the plates and LHOs, which were you know at the time quite common. Uh, ox- oxygen cones, um, and then uh, drum filters. We were manufacturing drum filters and and the uh, the CO2 strippers and LHOs in house, um, along with some of the you know pump stands and, and equipment like this. And yeah. uh, for for biofilters, it was moving bed biofilters. So we were designing the aeration systems and the uh, screens to hold the media in place and all all this, I guess. Where was where were the farms or the recirculation systems um, that Atlantec was selling that to? I guess at the at the time, uh, Doug had developed a relationship with some companies down in Chile, and so uh, there were several projects down around Portamont. Right. You know, I, I just was talking with uh, Bill and Aquaculture's, um, I think, chief operating officer uh, Bjarne, and he was indicating that some of their very first salmon wrasse were down in Chile, not in Europe or or anywhere else, which I, I sort of remember because I had visited Kamanchaka's smolt facility um, maybe a decade ago, and it was just being finished up, and it was this massive uh, recirculation system for producing smolt that would go out into the cages, and it was a, really a kind of a keystone project for, uh, for Bill and down there. Yes, and I've I've got some experience with Bill and Systems, uh, you know, through through clients of ours, and uh, they find their systems to be uh, quite good. I'm just curious, was there any sort of catalyst? I know that the whole RAS uh, thing started, the application of that started in the hatchery side of things, but was was there a, sort of a catalyst that sort of drove the industry to look at this in terms of producing fish all through uh, grow out? And harvest. Marilyn, I'll, I'll jump in and, and then let Mark uh, comment. But, you know, my recollection and experience was that some of the flow through facilities that were producing salmon smolt for net pens uh, were having issues with a variety of things, including disease or uh, temperatures, and they weren't able to produce smolt uh, optimally um, all year round for their stocking of the net pens. So the the logical solution there is to control the environment, control the temperature, and, and provide some uh, biosecurity barriers through application recirculation systems. And actually, that that really rings true for me because um, I think it was uh, Vancouver Island in the mid-90s. They had been working with the Freshwater Institute, uh, a couple of consulting firms out there on the island, to uh, implement uh, technologies that freshwater um, had developed or put together into a RAS system, and and it was you know disease and and water temperature based. Mark, I would agree with Brian. The the move to land based uh, RAS, uh, you know they were the kind of producers here in the Maritimes wanted to grow larger smolts, right? So so the systems grew, and the other reason uh, was for biosecurity with their broodstock. I guess uh, the cook here in the Maritimes and, and I think uh, marine harvest on the West Coast uh, in the 90s uh, transitioned their broodstock to to freshwater on land. Fast forward to today. What are some of the still challenges in land-based recirculating aquaculture that uh, that remain today in terms of this of the technology? For us, uh, the, the size of the systems is uh, continually increasing. 
when I started back in 2006, systems uh, were being fed in the hundreds of kilograms a day. And uh, today the projects we're working on are in the tons per day. So most of the challenges uh, we're facing today on, on the engineering side are, are related to that increase in size of the system. You know, there's, there's challenges around finding sites, uh, like actual building locations that can, that can facilitate a, uh, a facility of that size, right? So, so a property with the right area, the power availability, and, uh, and the groundwater. In addition to the challenges uh, related to just the land, uh, there's there's also challenges uh, when working with, sorry, when engineering systems of this size as well. What we're finding is that the level of treatment required on these larger systems is more intense. So side loops for uh, denitrification and phosphorus capture are being added. With each of those, there there's challenges as well, right? Like um, the methanol uh, that's required for the denitrification, how to get that to the site and how to use that safely uh, in the systems, right? And and as the systems get bigger, more of these uh, inputs are required. Mark, when you're talking about going to tons of feed a day, the biofilters must be immense. Um, are you running into any uh, scaling effects? Like you can only go to a certain size uh, vessel for a moving bed, or I mean, are there any of those limitations that you're running into at five tons of uh, feed into a RAS each day? In in the projects I'm involved with, uh, my clients seem to be moving away from uh, moving bed biofilters on mm -hmm. these larger projects. Primarily, I think because we're moving to the uh, lower water usage. So we're moving away from say 300 liters per kilogram feed down to like 50. And when you get into low water usage like that, it seems like the benefit of a kind of a static biofilter uh, and its ability to capture fine solids, um, you know, it really kind of helps the system. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you can't use a moving bed biofilter in a system that use only uses 50 liters per kilogram feed. I, I just, I haven't seen it done before. So far, uh, we haven't, I guess. Um, with the static biofilters, I guess my, cons my, my personal concern would be that they start to get too long uh, mm -hmm. because we saw in earlier iterations of, of static biofilters that as being an issue, right? So you're if they get too long, the water will uh, the water won't pass up evenly through the bed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say my experience with static filters does go back to my very first experience with RAS, and uh, we we did see a, a movement away from those filters, uh, and primarily because they would biofoul and they would create large biomass of biofilm. And at some point that stuff starts to die and slough off and it becomes a solids generator. Um, and cleaning those uh, was very um, significant uh, negatively on the water quality. So, so these things would collect all of these solids and then they would grow biofilm and they would shed that. You had to clean it every once in a while and, and that was very disruptive. And so we saw a movement away from those kind of things into the you know the attached growth fluidized uh, sand or fluidized 
moving bed. So it's interesting to see that uh, maybe there are, are ma management strategies to allow for the static filters to work. I would say there certainly are, and and they, you know, it, it has to be done correctly. And Brian, it's it's interesting you say that um, where the protocols aren't in place uh, is where you see a static filter uh, that's aerated, right? To to kind of prevent that growth, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so they're they're kind of in a way defeating an operational choice, I guess. But you know, this is the way these folks have found, you know, they're able to grow fish, right? I, I'm wondering, um, is it a viable thing to consider a standard for RAS in the industry? Well, I think uh, companies, uh, producers themselves have those standards internal. Um, you know, we're, we're certainly aware of, of what um, various companies, you know, how, how they manage these static filters so that they don't have the issues that uh, Brian raised. Um, so... You know, I, I don't know how open they are to, to sharing that, right? It, it, it seems like some of this information is starting to become um, privileged. I think in the industry, it's pretty well standardized, you know, how much TSS, uh, how much CO2, how much oxygen is required for every uh, kilogram of feed uh, that's fed, right? So, like, Brian, there are nuances to the system designs, mm -hmm. but... Um, in terms of nutrients, uh, you know, nitrogen that's coming out of your fish, um, you know, I, I think across the board, system designers are working, you know, more or less with the same numbers there, right? With the design criteria specified, the actual RAS design may not be standardized, but the engineering principles are. Everyone's using the same equations uh, or playing by the same rules. If you go to three RAS suppliers with the same design criteria, you're going to get more or less the same recirc rate and nitrifying uh, back biofilter uh, surface area. You're going to get close to the same oxygen transfer uh, capacity from each uh, as well. One may transfer oxygen at a higher pressure and lower flow compared to another, but the overall, say, kilograms per hour, kilograms per day transfer, it'll be the same. Uh, generally, the costs are going to be close as well, like uh, within 10 or 20%. If a supplier is 50% less, for example, I would certainly need to take a close look at the mass balances uh, before recommending them. And uh, I guess I'd be suspicious that there's uh, perhaps something awry. Yeah, and Marilyn, I have to say that as someone who's you know been around for a while and and in the research and development industry, part of recirculation systems, we have talked about standards, standards for things like um, biofilters or screen sizing or pack column aeration sizing. And, and there seems to be so many opinions and so strong opinions about some of these things that um, standards just didn't stick. Um, I mean, I know Mark probably has his design criteria for um, you know, hydraulic loading over a carbon dioxide stripper or a low head oxygenator or, or other unit processes that are the technology uh, basis for recirculation systems. Um, and I might have mine and they might be uh, slightly different. And for whatever reason, people really get attached to those, you know, this is the way you have to do it. This, these are the, this is the criteria you have to use. And, you know, as a as a group that that researches and publishes, we just put out there what we what we find, what we think is optimal, and then people go from there. But I don't think we're going to see standards 
uh, anytime soon. What we might see standards on is uh, water quality requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and especially coming out of Norway, I think they have a very strong regulatory environment when it comes to aquaculture. And they, you know, when it comes to lice, you know, they want to see you know, no more than a half lice uh, per adult fish in the cages. And, and they have some uh, oxygen, CO2. And I think we're going to start to see some of that come into play. I want to ask Mark on that. Are, a client comes to you and, and says, I want a recirculation system. Do they say, we just want to raise the fish or do they, they put in front of you water quality standards that you have to meet? Usually it's uh, back and forth. And to be honest, I, I feel it's a critical part of the process. Um, before you go out to, uh, to say, tender a system is, is to agree on, you know, what are you going to use the system for? How many fish, what size, how much are you going to feed them? And what do you want for water quality? And at least that way, everybody's quoting the same thing, right? Um, uh-huh. What I've seen over the t- over the years, and, and probably you've seen it too, Brian, is if you go to three companies and ask them for for a for a quote for a system for say two thousand or sorry two million small, you're going to get three different system designs uh, for three different sets of water quality. Uh-huh. You know, so you really have to provide that uh, to ensure everybody's on on the same uh, plane, right? Right. Earlier, you mentioned that you've seen the a water use on a per kilo feed basis go from 300 to maybe now you're hearing your clients wanting 50. But you know, when when I when we work on our projects, we have a range of of uh, water use in, in the research uh, from you know 500 all the way down to 30. I think is the lowest we've gone. And of course, the lower you get, the more technologies you have to add on. So when a client comes to you and says hey, we only want to use 50 liters per kilo of feed. Do they realize that the the designer's going to have to add on a denitrification technology? And uh, and then how how do you address that? What 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 kind of advanced technologies are you actually using nowadays? So first of all, I guess it hasn't happened yet where a client comes and says they want to use uh, 50 liters per kilogram feed. You know, I I think still the preference is to to have, uh, you know, if, if, if a client can pick, they're going to pick uh, having the water availability for 350, 500, right? Like if if they can find a site where there's 500 liters per kilogram feed uh, to right. do what they are trying to do, that's where they're going to go, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, what we're finding is as the system sizes increase, to get the size of system they they want where they want it, that's more uh, necessitating the technology hmm. uh, more than than them saying, you know, gee, we'd really like to to do it this way, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and specifically on the on the denitrification component, because as you know, when you reduce the water required or available to the RAS, the nitrate nitrogen builds up, and, and denitrification yep. is is one of the first technologies, uh, advanced technologies that the RAS are having to add on. And we've done some work here at the Freshwater Institute looking at um, membrane biological reactors to um, to denitrify. And we'll continue some of that work in 2021. Uh, but how about how about you in, in practice? What are you actually uh, doing there? So it seems the most common uh, way to achieve that is uh, you take your drum filter backwash and pass it through a plate separator, uh, which has enough resonance time to 
to effectively lower your oxygen uh, down to anoxic. Mm-hmm. And then uh, from there, you go into basically a, another static filter. I see. And the denitrifiers live in that static filter, and then they denitrify. And then the, the water that comes out, that gets reused in the system. Yes. Uh, and if if phosphorus control is required, there's a side loop off the denitrification uh, outlet to to the uh, phosphorus capture. Yeah, I, I feel that that these those advanced technologies in particular are really the ones with the with the least standards, Marilyn. Like we know how to size drum filters now because the manufacturers tell us you need you know for this quality of, of water you need this size filter, or you know there's certain hydraulic loading rates that have been published for CO2 strippers or for oxygenation. But these denitrification and phosphorus removal that are becoming critical when it comes to uh, permitting projects. I feel like that's the wild west out there. <laughs> so, it is. <laughs> there aren't a lot of publications. I think uh, Yanni Zohar has, uh, uh, his group at the University of Maryland has published a little bit on kind of the zero exchange system where you're, yep. you're very little water is being put in. And he did, his, um, his student, uh, his name escapes me right now, uh, did it in a marine environment, and they did uh, uh, denitrification. So there's some information out there, and we've done a little bit, but this is this is really the the, the leading edge of the technologies for RAS um, that are required. And 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 I noticed um, in Nordic Aquafarms permit in Maine that they are actually adding on advanced technologies to their effluent um, before it's discharged into the Penobscot River. So in addition to the technologies for denitrification and uh, phosphorus removal, um, there is some uh, additional uh, work that's still being done on uh, ozone uh, application. Now, Freshwater Institute's worked on ozone um, since way back in the early 1990s, and we've published uh, a tremendous amount of information on what we call low-dose ozonation. This is just a small amount of ozone added per kilo of feed fed in the RAS to maintain a certain um, uh, ORP level that keeps the water relatively clean. It also microflocculates small particles and and um, it's very effective. We haven't seen the application of ozone in Europe all that much. And, and so to um, to kind of expand that knowledge base, we, we have been working with the researchers in the Control Aqua Consortium and a, recently just published a paper on using ozone in brackish and, and seawater systems. And th- there is a, a complicating factor when you use ozone to improve water quality in those systems because um, if they have uh, bromine and bromides in, in the water, you can create toxic uh, residuals. And so the, the most recent research, which was published, a paper by Kevin Stiller. Um, looked at some of the indicators that can be evaluated in real time to make sure that they're not over ozonating and create too many toxic byproducts. Um, so it was really looking at the indicators uh, on the fish side. Um, we have lots of experience, as I mentioned. Mark, have you uh, any experience using ozone in your projects? Yes, uh, we've, we've done... Uh... We haven't worked with uh, salt water yet, but uh, certainly on the fresh water, uh, we've been working with ozone for quite some time. And uh, a couple or three years ago, did a research project 
with MAZI injectors, uh, just just kind of optimizing the transfer of ozone uh, mm-hmm. to to essentially eliminate the off gassing. I find it interesting that there's there's still an, an issue, I guess, with uh, with off gassing um, in 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 brand new systems, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's really an issue that should be under control. I'm wondering in your research here with Control Aqua, like how how uh, were you transferring the ozone and, and was off gas an issue? Yeah. So and again, this was more of a, a controlled experiment as opposed to you know how we would apply it in the RAS and and they have a kind of a separate ozonation system and that's in a separate building or separate really uh, part of the okay. part of their structure so it goes off. But I can tell you because we've done ozone in in large scale RAS and um, it's something you have to pay very close attention to the safety details on and make sure you have safety interlocks so that if you ever sense uh, a hazardous or dangerous level of ozone that things turn off. Uh, most ozone generators um, have all the safety interlocks that you need for a recirculation project. And, and you know, 30 years of, of using ozone in recirculation systems, we really haven't had any problems. That, like I said, that information is published and out there. It's just we, we haven't quite seen the application of ozone um, outside of, of North America. I mean, there's lots of, as you've used it, and um, the West Coast uh, salmon smolt Ras hatcheries have used it, but um, I hear people in in Europe talking about, oh, we're gonna we're gonna figure out how we're gonna add ozone, and, and I think that, really you know, they could yeah they could they could look to the literature and and it's already out there and um, it can do some some really good things. It's not a complete uh, silver bullet though. I mean you know it doesn't eliminate hormones, and we published on that. And we, we're not sure if it does anything on off flavor or, or what level it would take to do. Um, destruction of off flavor, but it does have great water quality improvements, uh, as you know. And I, I do expect to see um, more vendors like the uh, vendors in Europe who deliver and design and deliver RAS to start to incorporate ozone. We we like the low head oxygenator, as you know, and it's a very simple way to add ozone. Uh, but there there are other ways like a downflow bubble contactor and things like that. Um, so yeah, I think you know that that is something that will get some uh, additional uh, application, Marilyn. Um, I think another technology that maybe Mark has experience with or has a request for is membrane biological systems, and these are a tech, this is another technology that comes out of the uh, wastewater side and is starting to come down in price and become attractive to. Uh, recirculation aquaculture systems uh, for their effluent and if you like I said if you look at the Nordic aqua permit they're they're applying some advanced technologies like membrane biological system membrane biological reactor systems to uh, denitrify and provide extremely clean water um, with um, that, that can be either reused or discharged so uh, Mark are you running into anybody asking for MBRs nowadays only regulators yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it is. I don't. I'm not sure it would be a choice, but it is something that, based on your site, could be regulated, right? Yeah, like, and, and I guess I think there's uh, some misconception, like a membrane bioreactor is, is not going to get your total nitrogen down to zero, right? No. It's right. and it's not going to get your phosphorus down to zero, right? Mm-hmm. You're still going to be kind of in the milligrams per liter mm-hmm. range, right? So. 
you know, we've got fairly uh, stringent restrictions on uh, nitrogen and phosphorus here in New Brunswick, and it's probably similar in Maine, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, the regulators are looking for concentrations of phosphorus in the micrograms, right? So a membrane bioreactor uh, with with no dilution is, is still isn't going to give you that, right? Yeah. No, I, I agree. And uh, we're hoping to do, like I said, some additional research in the area of of MBRs and how to best incorporate that into the RAS to uh, reduce, uh, you know, honestly reduce the, the water use and then capture the, the nutrients or remove the nutrients um, in, in some way. You, you mentioned a few other things that I hadn't heard of when it comes to advanced technologies or the, the, the next generation, which was you know, having to deliver, store, and use things like methanol, which is a um, a carbon source for for denitrification, is is that something that the regulators are are on um, are are very interested in? I, I'm not aware. No, um, basically, the, for us, I th I think the biggest challenge is is the health and safety aspect, and uh, just making sure we have the protocols in place so that folks can work with it safely, and that the the equipment's there. Uh, should 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 there be an incident, I guess, to to help mitigate that. Yeah, I know that talking about effluent and and things like regulations. That one of the other places we see for innovations in the space is um, dealing with your solids. So the sludge, and how that sludge is going to be separated from the water and then either utilized or disposed of. And uh, we are starting a new area of research into anaerobic digestion. Um, this isn't new in, in any way. In fact, there's many anaerobic digesters out there for dairy waste and other waste. In, in fact, there's a few anaerobic digesters out there for aquaculture, recirculation aquaculture waste. But uh, we're looking for um, additional ways to optimize that through uh, co-digestion and, and some other things. So we have a new scientist on board to do that. Mark, are you running into anybody doing um, really innovative or unique things on the sludge and manure side of the recirculation systems? You know, the first step that, that we're seeing adopted is is uh, decanters or centrifuges to, to dewater the solids. The reason we've kind of shied away from anaerobic digestion is, um, I guess, based on our literature reviews, we didn't see a huge reduction in the in the amount of solids. I'm wondering if you can comment on that. Like, yeah, I, I can, and I am not an anaerobic digestion expert. Um, our new scientist, uh, Dr. Ebenov Chowdhury, is, and uh, he has, in working with dairy waste, shown really good results uh, in both increasing the energy output of the biogas and reduction of overall residuals by adding. Um, a co-digestion waste. So in, in the case of his uh, dissertation, he added waste from a gummy vitamin uh, manufacturer. So uh, you know how vitamins are now often delivered in a gummy form, a gummy bear form or what have you. And uh, those producers or manufacturers have lots of gummy waste. And that is a great source to co-digest with your sludge or your uh, aquaculture sludge. And it can really reduce the um, the overall residuals. I think he showed an 80% increase in residual reduction, and like a four or five times increase in the energy content of the gas. So it's uh, it's dramatic. I think there's this is something that um, you know we'll continue to work on and hopefully start to publish on some things that um, you know folks like yourself, designers and 
and uh, owners can do to get more out of their anaerobic digestion processes. Yeah, it's just, it's hard to wrap your head around what a process like that would look like for, um, you know, if, if you're working on a site that has feeding 10 tons a day, you have three mm-hmm. tons of solids dry weight going into it, you know, that, that digester is going to be a fair size, right? Yeah, well, uh, I'm not sure how big the dairies are up north, but um, the dairies down here can get into the thousands of head of cattle, and, and um, uh, they they typically have uh, large digesters. These are uh, the typically two, one or two large reactors um, over 100 feet or 30 meters in diameter, and you know, 10, 15 meters deep, and so they're quite large. Oh. They're, they're typically buried. Um, to you know, maintain the thermal uh, heat that's being generated because that's an input yep. as well. So, so, um, so yeah, that, I think it's definitely doable, and we may start to see that. It's it's one of those things as these uh, as these farms, you know, you know, people talk about these you know, over thirty thousand tons of land-based grow-out. That is a lot of sludge. I mean, that is yes. a, a tremendous amount of sludge, and it's something that um, you don't want to be caught off guard with. And I think. For the most part, the the big projects out there do understand, you know, what's going to happen when they start uh, growing these fish. But um, having a good solution to manage it and hopefully take advantage of it, because we feel that there's there's things you could take advantage of, uh, like the the producing the energy from uh, from the waste. So just to to wrap up, I think Mark, if you could talk about where do you see the technology going? Um, uh, further evolving, you know, say five, ten years into the future, as we get uh, we get more uh, applications and uh, implementations across the world. So I guess uh, today, with these low water uh, systems, 50 liters per kilogram feed, uh, what what we're finding is it's almost in a way a minimum uh, because that's how much water we need to actually carry the solids out of the system. So. Um, you know, cleaning your statics, uh, cleaning your plate separators, um, like that's that's how much water we new water we need to be able to carry out, say, the day-to-day activities. Moving forward, uh, hopefully, hopefully there's a way to uh, treat this water on the affluent side, you know, such that folks are are comfortable enough to reuse it in the system, and then that'll pay, kind of pave the way to get this water requirement down below even 50 uh, liters per kilogram feed or, or 30 like Brian's done at the Freshwater Institute. And I think what that'll do is, is it'll just make more sites accessible for larger, larger farms. Right. Brian, do you have uh, anything else to add? Uh, no, I just want to thank Mark for um, participating on the podcast today and willing to talk some of the uh, RAS engineering design details with us. I think our listeners uh, will be uh, very interested to hear from a practitioner like uh, Mark Sorensen, uh, who has to deal with owners and design these systems and get them up and running. Uh, I really th- uh, want to thank you for that, Mark, and, and appreciate you taking the time today. Oh, I, I owe you at least one podcast, Brian. <laughs> You've been a lot of help over the years. <laughs> thank you as well, Mark. For everyone who's listening, I'd like to let you know again about our upcoming RAS Virtual Summit. It's an online event happening on September 16th. For more information, visit rastechmagazine.com. Thanks, everyone. That concludes our episode. For the latest RAS-related news, visit rastechmagazine.com. Join us again next time for another engaging conversation here at Brass Talk.